following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Acts 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, I believe this morning the Patterson family is going to come and, and read. The, yes, here they come. They're going to read the Bible for us. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear that this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Thank you, Pattersons. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeff and Caleb and Laura. That was great. We could just imagine you guys as an unruly mob in Ephesus. <laughs> Very nicely done. Okay. Now, let me uh, start off by showing you a picture here of a particular place that will be, I'm about to fall off the stage, that will be familiar to most of you. Uh, where is this? Pyroa, yes. Good old Pyroa, a little town in the Waikato. Famous for this, of course. Famous for LMP, uh, even though LMP is not actually manufactured there anymore. 
manufactured up in Auckland now, but this is where it originated, right? One of our favourite beverages from, uh, from Pyroa, and you drive into Pyroa, of course, and you see this, it's very prominent, the big LMP bottle, it's right there, uh, icon of the city, and it's put Pyroa on the map, hasn't it? This is why Pyroa is world famous in New Zealand, because of LMP, because of this bottle, it's iconic, it's a symbol of the city, symbol of the town. All right, now I say that to make this very tenuous comparison, okay? I'm gonna put another photo up now for you of another icon of another city, okay? This, is, this might not be quite as familiar to you, but this is the temple of Ephesus in the first century. And uh, this temple was an icon of its city. This was the great temple of the goddess Artemis. And this was the temple that was standing when Paul came into the city of Ephesus in the first century. And Ephesus was famous for the worship of this goddess Artemis, one of the Greek goddesses. And Artemis was believed to be the, the protector of the city, the provider of the people, the, the patron deity of the city of Ephesus. And so when you come into the city of Ephesus, you see this really prominently. You can't miss it. And what I want to say about that is that what the LMP bottle is to Pyroa, the temple was to Ephesus, okay? That's the connection, all right? I know that might be tenuous, but it's the best I can do. The LMP bottle in Pyroa and the temple in Ephesus, it was an icon of the city. And it is what made Ephesus world famous in the Roman Empire, at least. It, because Artemis was not just worshipped in Ephesus, but throughout the known world. Just like people drink LMP all over New Zealand, Artemis was worshipped all over the place, and the Ephesians were very proud of that. They loved the fact that, her, that their goddess was, was famous and was worshipped far and wide. It gave them a lot of pride in their city. It made them feel good about being Ephesians. This was their god, and she was worshipped far and wide. Now, as well as having this temple, which had a huge image of the, the goddess inside this temple, as well as the huge statue of Artemis that the city had, they also had these little shrines of Artemis, little shrines like this, all right? So they also had these little gods of Artemis as well as the big one that was in the temple. Because Artemis was so popular you, don't, popular, you don't just want to have to go to the temple to worship Artemis. You want to be able to worship Artemis in your home, right? Just like we don't want to have to go to Pyro to drink LMP. We want to be able to have our own little shrine to the LMP God in our own house. So everyone wanted one of these. I mean, a shrine to Artemis. Everyone wanted to have an idol of Artemis in their home so that they could have this on the shelf and they could bow down to Artemis. And it was just a household thing. And that meant that the production of these shrines was big business, right? Just like the production of LMP is big business. Artemis shrines were pretty popular things. And so there was a whole industry around creating personal idols and shrines for people's homes so that everyone could have their, their own little Artemis to worship. And because of that, this was a lot of income for a lot of people in the city of Ephesus, and it kept a lot of people employed. And what started to happen around the middle of the first century is that Paul came along, and he started talking about Jesus. And he started telling all the Ephesians the good news about Jesus and how they didn't need to worship Artemis anymore. They didn't need to have all these little gods, man-made gods anymore. They could worship the one true God. 
They could worship Jesus. And the gospel had a huge impact in the city of Ephesus. It really took hold and massive numbers of people came to place their faith in Jesus. And one of the effects that this had is that demand for the Artemis shrines plummeted. It's actually quite extraordinary when you think about it that the gospel had such an impact on a city that it disrupted the economy. You think about what would happen today, you know, if that, if that was the case. If the gospel had such an impact in a city that it changed the, the economy of that city. This was how pervasive the gospel was. But it did. There was very little demand for these idols, these Artemis idols anymore. And so this started to have an effect on the people that made these idols and they relied on that production for their own livelihood. So you get this guy, Demetrius. And he was one of the main crafts people in the city of Ephesus. And he brought in a lot of business, making these shrines, making these idols. That was, that was his income. And he had a whole network, like a trade guild of shrine makers. And so Demetrius gets these crafts people together. And he says, friends, this isn't, this isn't good what's happening. We've got this guy, Paul, who's come into town. And he's telling everyone about Jesus. And he's telling everyone that, that Artemis is not a real god. And he's telling everyone that this is not, 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 not even worthy of being worshipped. And so people aren't buying Artemis shrines anymore. And, and it's going to bring our great goddess into disrepute. And it's going to bring our great city into disrepute. Now, you know, he didn't care really about any of that stuff. He cared about his bottom line, right? He cared about his own income, his own revenue forecasts that were not going in the right direction. But he says, you know, this is going to be a problem for the city. And this is going to be a problem for Artemis. And so he whips these guys into a frenzy. And they become furious about what's going on. And this group that started out reasonably civilized becomes an angry, hostile mob. And they, they rush out into the streets and more and more crowds are gathering. More and more people are kind of drawn into this. It just becomes a chaotic scene. You know how a mob mentality can kind of take over? And, 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 they're, and they're just rushing through the main street of Ephesus. People are joining in. They're not even sure why they're there. And they're looking for Paul or they're looking for some of his companions to try and lynch them. And they find these two guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's companions. They couldn't find Paul, but they find these other two guys. So they grab hold of them. They drag them along in the procession. And they finally all rush into the theater in Ephesus, the big amphitheater in the city, which, which I think is still there. There's the ruins of it you can still see if you go to Ephesus today. So they fill this theater, this, this huge crowd is there. They're all chanting and shouting, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, just like the Pattersons were. And they're just, it's chaos. It's total bedlam. At one point, the Jewish community put up a spokesperson to try and bring some calm, this guy Alexander. But as soon as the crowd realized he's Jewish, well, he doesn't worship Artemis either. So then they just shout him down. And they just keep on chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for hours. Until finally, the town clerk comes out and addresses them and manages to somehow get a hearing. He somehow is able to be heard. And he says, if we keep on rioting like this, if you keep on upsetting the public order like this, the Romans are going to come and bring the hammer down on this place. Because the Romans were in charge and they did not take kindly to any upsetting of the public order, any disturbing of the peace. They would come in and use brute force to put that sort of thing down. So the town clerk says, you've got to be careful here. You, you, you keep on rioting like this. It's not going to end well for our city. And he says, these, these two guys that you've dragged in here, Gaius, Aristarchus, 
They have not committed any crimes. They have not done anything wrong. They've not blasphemed the goddess. If you want to lay charges against them, the courts are open. You can go and press charges in the usual way, by the usual process. But let's not have all of this rioting because that is going to bring us into disrepute with our Roman overlords. And somehow that worked. Somehow the town clerk's words got through. The people seemed to calm down. It seems like Gaius and Aristarchus were released or, you know, they, they, they weren't uh, mistreated too badly. And things returned to some kind of normal. It was a pretty close miss for Paul. It was a, it was a pretty delicate situation. It was a very volatile situation. I mean, it could have been the end of Gaius and Aristarchus easily. It could have been the end of Paul if they'd found him, and he narrowly escaped that one with his life. It's an interesting story because you don't, Paul is not directly involved in the action. He wanted to go into the theater, but the disciples held him back. And so he's, only, he's mentioned, but only indirectly. We don't really get much of a sense of what was this like for Paul looking on? What, what was his experience of all this? How did he feel about things? But there is one little comment that Paul makes about this episode in one of his letters, this intriguing little comment that he makes in one of his letters, almost a passing comment, but it connects back to the story. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes this, this passing reference and says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. And scholars have puzzled over this and thought, what, is, what does Paul mean here talking about fighting wild beasts? When did he ever fight a wild beast? There's no story about that in Acts. There's no story about Paul wrestling a lion in the book of Acts. What does he mean by saying, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus? Now, when you understand a little bit more about Artemis, you can see what Paul is saying. Artemis was the goddess of wild beasts. That's who she was. She was the goddess of wild animals in Greek mythology and Roman mythology. She was the goddess of the hunt. In other words, she was believed to be the one that when you went out hunting for wild animals, she would watch over you. She would protect you and she would give you success in your, in your hunting. And of course, hunting was very important back in these days. And so Artemis was the goddess of the wild animals. And you can see then what Paul is saying, this really clever little play on words. He's saying when we encountered this mob in Ephesus... In some ways, they were acting like wild beasts, all of these people. It was like these wild animals formed an angry mob. But then at a deeper level, I think he's saying, it, it's as if we were fighting against Artemis herself. It's as if we were fighting against this false god, the god of the wild beasts. And it's like the powers of darkness were just against us. I think it's this picture of the, the opposition that Paul faced, the spiritual opposition, as well as the physical opposition that he describes as being like wild beasts in Ephesus. And in some ways, I think this whole episode that Paul experienced in Ephesus, it's, it's a bit of a picture of the kind of hostility that we can face as Christians today in our culture. Obviously, our situation's different. Our context is different. We don't tend to face this kind of mob mentality as Christians. We don't tend to face this kind of physical, violent kind of persecution. There's certainly some Christians around the world that do. There's some places right now where Christians are being physically persecuted and manhandled. We don't tend to face that. But in some ways, you look at this situation, you look at this crowd, you look at what Paul faced. In some ways, I feel like this crowd... This mob is a lot like our culture. 
You look at the way they're described in verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. That, that sounds like a description of our culture, doesn't it? That could be a description of 21st century New Zealand. The, the culture is in confusion. Our culture is confused, isn't it? We live in a confused kind of generation, a confused kind of culture. Our culture is confused around identity. Our culture is confused about morality and truth. Our culture is confused about sexuality. Some people are shouting one thing. Some people are shouting another thing. People are shouting at each other. People are shouting on social media. People are just shouting past each other half the time. Most people don't even know why they're there. You know, people jump on bandwagons for things, not even quite know what I'm doing. They get carried along by the trends of popular opinion, carried along. They're jumping on a comment feed without even really knowing why they're there. We just sort of get blown along by the winds of, of public opinion and by media and so on. I think this is a pretty apt description of the cultural sort of currents that we're swimming in. And out of that confusion, there is often a lot of hostility that can be generated towards Christians in a confused kind of way. But Christians often bear the brunt of a very confused secular culture. Christians tend to be disparaged. We tend to be looked down upon. Christian voice gets pushed right out in a very secular culture, gets pushed right out of the public square, right out into the margins, right out into the fringes, right out into the private homes. Don't bring it out of your home. You just practice your faith before your God in your way, but don't bring it into any kind of public sort of space. Christian values tend to be disparaged, don't they? Pushed down and silenced and despised many times. And Christians tend to be seen largely as irrelevant and out of date and without any real place in a modern progressive culture. I think people on the surface are very polite People, you know, Kiwis are very polite, friendly people, but there is an underlying hostility in Western culture against Christianity and Christian values, which we've got to contend with and we've got to respond to and we've got to figure out what does it mean to live out our faith in the midst of this culture, in the midst of a culture that doesn't really want us here and certainly doesn't want us speaking up about what we believe and will push us down and squash us down however it can. What does it mean to live out an authentic faith? In this culture, what does it mean to live out a courageous faith in this culture, right? Where we don't just survive it, but we thrive in this culture. Is that even possible? Well, I think Paul shows us how. I think Paul's companions show us how. I think the Christians in the story have something to teach us about what it means to live out a courageous faith in the midst of a hostile culture. So let me mention three, three things, three brief things that I think we can draw from this story. Three things we're going to need if we're going to have a courageous faith in a hostile culture. The first is we're going to need conviction. We're going to need some conviction. Have a look at verse 26. Here's how Demetrius talked about Paul. He said, you see how this fellow Paul's convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, that's what Paul was saying, right? That's a dangerous thing to say in Ephesus. You don't walk into Ephesus and say gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's like walking into Pyro and saying LMP is not a proper drink. You just don't do it. You're taking your life in your hands if you do these kinds of things. But Paul did it. He didn't shrink back from it, did he? He was willing to, to speak the truth. He was willing to say these idols are nothing. 
These idols, this goddess that you worship, these gods made by human hands, they're not really gods at all. It's a hard truth to speak, but Paul was a man of conviction. He had convictions that ran deep, rooted into the Jewish tradition, rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And the revelation of Jesus that he'd received gave him deep convictions about the gospel that he proclaimed. And I wonder if in our modern context, there is a slippage that is happening in our Christian conviction because of the cultural pressure that is coming on us. I wonder if there's a slippage in our convictions around some issues because of cultural pressure to conform. There was a study that came out a few years ago, a survey on faith and belief in New Zealand. And among the questions and answers in that survey, it identified the top few they called belief blockers. In other words, the top, the top things that would prevent non-Christians from exploring the Christian faith. The top things that would turn a non-Christian off the Christian faith. And the top two were the church's views on homosexuality and the church's views on judgment, the judgment of God. And I know how easy it is when you look at that, you look at those kind of statistics, just to think, well, if we could just shift our views on these things, we would make it so much easier for ourselves. If we could just shift our views on these things just slightly, we would have such an easier time of it. And the message would be so much more attractive to our culture. And it would be so much more palatable to our culture. And, and some Christians do this. And there's this slip that goes on in our convictions because... The overarching agenda is to make our faith more appealing and make our faith more palatable. I was in a conversation just like this a couple of weeks ago with a non-Christian woman, and she asked me the question, what happens to people who don't know God when they die? And I thought, why did you ask me that question? Why did it have to be that one? Why couldn't you have asked me what happens to people who do know God when they die? I'm good on that one. You know, I talk about that all day long, but what people don't know God. And I was sort of concocting answers in my head. And eventually I gritted my teeth and said, for people that don't know God, they are separated from him forever when they die. They, they, they are separated in this life because they've chosen that. That's their choice. And then that carries over once they've died. If that's their choice, they're separated from God forever. Now, I didn't say they're going to burn in hell for all eternity in the lake of fire. You know, I think there's a place for using sensitive language here and saying these things graciously. And perhaps, and to be fair, in that survey, that might be what people are also protesting against is the ungracious way that Christians sometimes communicate these views. But nevertheless, it is not easy to hold sometimes to these convictions, especially in those kinds of conversations when you're asked those kinds of questions. But if we are going to hold to our faith in this kind of culture, we're going to need convictions. And these convictions, they can't just come from your own feelings. They can't just come from, well, I think this about this issue and surely, but I know this person and maybe, you know, this must be the case. It, they can't come just from your own experiences. They can't come even from your own family, important as that is, or your own background. These convictions, if we're to be true to the gospel, need to be anchored in Scripture and come out of the revelation of the Word of God. And I know there's lots of opportunity. We can dialogue about these things. We can wrestle these things through. They're not easy, and we need to communicate things with truckloads of grace. But we still need to be people of conviction, People who can stand upon the truth of God's word even when it's hard. It's not always going to be popular. 
But in every generation, people have had to ask themselves that question. Will I be carried along by the winds of this culture and by the spirit of the age, or will I stand firm in my convictions? You see Paul doing it here, and we're called to do the same, to be able to speak truth, even when it's not popular, because that's our conviction based on the Word of God. So we need to be people of conviction. Secondly, we need companions. There's a number of Paul's companions that are mentioned in this passage. You've got Gaius and Aristarchus. And you've also got this community in Ephesus, this little church that Paul had formed. And they were the ones that actually held Paul back from going into the theater when he wanted to go in there. And that because he wanted to, to try and address the crowd, presumably. And they said no. I mean, they held him back, probably because they were trying to care for him and trying to save his life, which is pretty hard because Paul was a resolute guy. When he decided he wanted to do something, you know, he, he, he'd made his mind up. But they persuaded him because they were caring for him and they were loving him and they were trying to support him. Sometimes I think we see Paul like a, like a lone ranger. And he's going around the ancient world and he's preaching the gospel and he's planting these churches all on his own. But the more you look in these stories in the book of Acts, you see Paul always operated within a network of colleagues There was always a very collegial circle around Paul and he would have people like Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and Silas and Luke and and, and these guys, Aristarchus guys, and he would be dispatching them over to this town here and then he'd be getting reports from them over here and he'd be saying, can you stay here? Well, I go here and I'll go here and you go there. He was moving around. He had a whole network of people and these were people who steadied him and supported him and journeyed with him in his ministry. And we need these people today. That word companions in this passage, it literally means to travel with. To travel with. Now, that was literally true for Paul. He had these people and he would travel with them. But I think today we still need people that we can travel with, that we can travel through life with, right? That we can travel through the seasons with, that we can draw close because we know that our culture, by and large, does not share our views. Most people in your workplace don't share your views, unless you work in my workplace, when they do. But for by and large, that's not the case. And so we need people that we can draw close to gain some solidarity and some support and some companionship to help steady us in our faith. Anna's got a couple of other women in the church that she walks with on a Monday night. And they're training for a marathon at the moment. So they're doing, I don't know, 17, 18 Ks at the moment. On a Monday night, they're walking around the streets of the North Shore. And uh, so she's got these women she is literally traveling with because they're walking all over the place. But she's also traveling with them in the sense of journeying through life. The, The three of them are Christians. And I think from the minute they start walking to the minute they stop, they are talking the whole time, which amazes me. I don't know how, I don't think I could physically do it. You know, I'd be so out of breath, but they just talk the whole time. And they're encouraging each other and they're talking about life and faith and parenting and family and all these things and and supporting each other as they deal with stuff as Christians. And one way or another, we all need this, don't we? We all need some Christian companions. Maybe not a lot, but at least one or two. And you may not think you do, but I tell you what, when the bullets start flying... And when times get hard, and when the pressure comes on your faith, you're going to need some brothers around you. You're going to need some sisters around you that you can lean on, people that can support you, people that can encourage you. And when you're in the fire like that, it's going to be hard to find those people then. So find them now. 
Find those people now. And if you don't have that tight circle around you, a few other Christians that you, you can encourage, who can support you, you can support them, then, then draw them close now. Find those people. Look around in the church and see, you know, who, who do I know? Who can I start to form a bit of a relationship with now? And if you've got a bit of a connection, could you make that maybe a, a regular kind of catch-up where you start asking each other slightly deeper questions about life and what you're struggling with and what's challenging you and what you're thinking about in your faith and what you'd like that person to pray for you? Could you be a little bit more intentional about that relationship than you are now? Build on that over time. Because when it gets hard... You're going to need those people around you. You're going to need companions. So gather them close now. If we're going to have a courageous faith in this culture, we're going to need some companions. And finally, the last thing we're going to need, having a courageous faith in a hostile culture, means we're going to need resilience. I'm sorry that I could not come up with another word starting with C. It really bugged me <laughs> this week. But I suppose you could say courage. But I, I do wonder whether resilience is a slightly sharper word to use in this context, that we need resilience. You look at, at the end of the story, and this is why I asked the Pattersons to read through to the first verse of chapter 20, because you look at Paul's response to this at the end. After the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Now, you could read that as a statement of retreat, that Paul was so traumatized by what had happened that he was heading home, except that he wasn't heading home, was he? Where was he heading? Back into the fight. You know, he's heading to Macedonia. What's in Macedonia? More trouble. You know, he had all sorts of problems in Macedonia. He had, the Corinthians were embarrassed of him. He got locked up in Philippi. He got rejected in Athens. That was Macedonia. And yet Paul just seemed to have this kind of tenacity where he could be... We could go through this kind of experience in Ephesus and yet he could just pick himself up at the end of it and just head back out into the fight and back out into it and say, I'm just going to keep on going. I'm not going to retreat. I'm not going to pull back. He had this resilience about him. What has happened to that kind of resilience today? What has happened to this? We, we, we talk about resilience. I mean, it's the buzzword, right? We talk about, we want children that are resilient. We want our young people to be resilient. We talk about emotional resilience. We talk about mental resilience. What about spiritual resilience? What about resilience in our faith? What about a generation of resilient disciples? This is where we need to be because I, I fear that we've got a lot of Christians today who are pretty flaky in their faith and it doesn't take much to completely knock them off their, their perch in their faith. I was talking to a guy just last week who had a number of Christian friends just recently leave their faith, just walk away from their faith. I don't know why. Maybe it got too hard, too embarrassed, too bored. I don't know why it is. There's, there's people this is happening to. And then I think there's an even bigger group of Christians who are just pulling back in their faith and becoming closet Christians. Closet Christians at work, it's too hard now. feel like we've lost the culture war. It's too difficult. We're basically just living in the shell of a faith having the form of Christianity, but no spiritual vitality because we, we're just not willing to, to go there anymore. We need this kind of spiritual tenacity, spiritual resilience that we see in the Apostle Paul where he could get to the end of his life and say, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's what I want to be able to say when I get there. 
That's what I want to be able to declare. And not that it's always going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Paul. Don't think of him as this kind of invincible guy. He struggled, man. Read 2 Corinthians. He was like, he, he struggled. He carried this so his. He, he struggled daily. The pressure that is on me because of all of these churches. He, he struggled. And yet he could take one step after another step by the grace of God and remain resilient in his faith because God gave him daily the strength that he needed. I want to get to the finish line and be able to say those words. I want all of you with me at the finish line that we can say those words together, right? I've finished the, the race. I've kept the faith, fought the good fight. Don't you want to be able to say that? I don't want to lose people along the way. We don't want to have casualties along the way. We don't want to lose people to friendly fire along the way. We want to get there to the end together. We want to make it. But to do that, we need to ask God to give us that resilience that even after we face these storms from culture and storms of life that put immense pressure on our faith, that our, our spiritual roots are deep enough that we are not like trees that get blown over in the wind, but we can be steady, we can be strong, we can lift our heads high as Christians, even in this rigidly secular culture. We can lift up our heads and say, I am comfortable walking through this world as a follower of Jesus. I know who I am because I know whose I am. I have security in my identity in Christ. I have confidence in what I believe. I am comfortable calling myself a Christian, even in front of other people that don't share my faith. And I will walk through this world an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, steady and confident in what I believe. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but we need a resilient faith that will go the distance. It doesn't come from ourselves. It's not about just summoning up some inner strength. It comes from the Lord, and we need to ask God to give us this resilience. Ask God to give us this kind of tenacity, right? Ask God to fulfill the, the promise of his word where he, he says, strengthen the feeble knees. You know that verse, some of you? Strengthen the feeble knees and strengthen the weak arms. And some of you have got weak knees this morning. You know, you're shaking, you're nervous about your faith. You feel timid as a Christian. Lord, strengthen the feeble knees and strengthen the weak arms. Some of you have got weak arms. You're tired. You're weary in your faith. Lord, strengthen the weak arms. Give back strength to those brothers and sisters that need it. That's the kind of tenacity we need in our faith. All right, let me finish with a story and then I'll pray. In the 1980s, there was a, a pastor, Hungarian pastor named Laszlo Tokes, and he ministered in Romania, a little church in Romania. And this was a time in Romania where it was ruled by a communist dictator who was essentially trying to remake Romania in his own image. He was literally starving his people while he lived in luxury. He was oppressing people. He had a network of secret police around the country kind of trying to keep tabs on people. Uh, among other things, he wanted to try and control the church, try and make the church an organ of the state. And Laszlo Tokes resisted that believe the, the church should be free of that kind of interference. And so he just went about his, his duties and he preached the word of God and this little community of Christians grew and thrived. And he saw people come to faith and people were baptized and people were discipled. And there was this, this life in the church and there was this spiritual vitality in the church and people were living out this courageous faith and they had conviction and they had courage. And they had a boldness about them. But the communist state didn't like it because it was a rigidly secular state. And this expression of Christianity didn't have any real place in their vision of what Romania should be. And so this dictator sent the secret police into the church 
and they would keep tabs initially on what was going on and members of the secret police would, would come into the church service and they'd stand at the back with machine guns and handcuffs while the church service was going on. Imagine that. Imagine that. How many of you would have come this morning if you'd known there were going to be secret police with machine guns at the back of the room, you know? But, that's, but these people still came. These Christians still came and they continued growing and thriving in their faith. Eventually, the secret police said to Laszlo Tokes, you're going to be evicted on Friday night. We're going to come and take you from your home, try and relocate him out in the country somewhere. And they turned up. There was a huge crowd of Christians there. It was a mob, but it wasn't a hostile mob. It was a peaceful mob. And it wasn't just Christians from Laszlo Tokes' church. It was Christians from right across the whole Christian spectrum, Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Baptists and Anglicans, and everyone was there because they'd heard of what was going on, and they were there to peacefully protest against the removal of Laszlo Tokes and to stand as witnesses of what would happen. And so initially the secret police held back, not quite knowing what to do, but eventually they broke through and they removed Laszlo Tokes and his wife took them off. But even then, the crowd didn't disperse. People remained, and in fact, the crowd grew. And it moved into the public square. And these shouts of protest against the treatment of this pastor were mingled with shouts of freedom for Romania. And this peaceful protest eventually became an uprising, and that uprising eventually led to the overthrowing of that dictator. And by Christmas that year, 1989... The dictator was gone. Communism was gone. Freedom came to Romania. And you can trace it back. You can trace back the fall of communism in Romania to this little community of Christians, insignificant and seemingly irrelevant, who had conviction, who had companions, and who had resilience. And it gave them a courageous faith. And you just never know what the gospel can do when you have people of courageous faith, right? So whether it's Ephesus in the first century, whether it's Romania in the 1980s, whether it's Auckland in the 21st century, I pray that we would be people who have that kind of courageous faith. Even in a culture that doesn't want to know us and doesn't believe we've got a place, may we have that kind of faith. May we have deep convictions coming out of the Word of God. May we have companions to steady us and support us, especially when the going gets tough. And may we have resilience, a spiritual tenacity that will enable us to endure in faith over the long haul. Let's pray. Father, we gather here this morning as a, as a community of believers. And we think of those around the world in much more severe situations than us who face every day real threats of persecution and real threats of violence and danger. And we want to thank you, God, that we have that relative freedom here. But Lord, you know, we still feel the current of a culture that moves against us and moves against our faith, our values, and our worldview. I pray, God, that in the midst of this hostile culture, that we wouldn't respond with hostility, that we wouldn't respond with that kind of aggression, and that we wouldn't even respond with an arrogance, but that we would respond with humility and with courage. And I want to pray for each person in this room, God, as we head back out these doors into whatever our world and our culture holds for us this week, that in the everyday conversations we have, in the interactions we have, Lord, with others who don't hold our faith, that you'd help us to be people of conviction, holding firm to what we know to be true, even in spite of what our feelings might say sometimes.
Lord, I pray for each of us that you'd show us the companions you want us to have, the fellow travelers, the fellow servants that we can journey through life with. I pray for any this morning that that are longing for that kind of friendship but don't have it. I pray you'd bring someone along who would be that companion to them. And I pray, Lord, for those this morning who are weary on the journey, who are just maybe on the brink of giving up or just wondering whether it's even worth it. I pray you would give them resilience. I pray you would strengthen the weak knees and lift up the weary arms and give them back that fire and that life that you long for them to have in in their faith. Lord, strengthen us by your Spirit, and in all this, I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and now calls us to lift up our own cross and carry and follow him. Help us to follow you with courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.